Would you join me in Ephesians chapter 6? Really looking forward to our study tonight. Last week, we took a little break from this verse-by-verse study through Ephesians 6 uh, because it was Thanksgiving and we're talking about prayer, but we're getting back to that today. And this is our third study, our third message in this study on the armor of God. It's very important to recognize here how serious these three pieces of the armor are. We're going to see the only weapon that you and I have in this verse here. We're going to see the significance of a shield and a helmet, and also the significance of the instruction to take up. All of these are of massive importance as we go through spiritual attack. Now, sometimes we tend to make a spiritual attack defined by how severe it is, how much it rattles us. We say things like, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. And then we go to another situation and we say, well, that was really bad because of this and this and this. It's important to recognize that the adversary is actively seeking whom he can devour. Whether it's a small attack or a large attack, there is always something behind that attack. It's either setting you up for something bigger or it's trying to take you out in one swing. And we should not think of Satan as the boogeyman, someone that we should fear. We know how he will be defeated. It's not by our hand. It's not by our voice. It's by Jesus Christ. Amen? And we know that that's going to happen. If we're not careful, we can overemphasize the adversary and start to constrict ourselves. We can put a bind about ourselves, tie up our legs, close our mouth, and, and then say, oh, I'm being oppressed, but we're really doing that of ourselves. We have to be careful. Our power is in the Lord. That statement in and of itself is a massive part of your Christian life. You are not the strong one. You are in the strong one. Amen? We, we've got to remember this because everything that we go through, whether big or small, this is in the Lord's hands. It's as soon as we take it out of his hands and say, no, dad, I can do it. That's when we run into problems. And it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. You still need him. Amen. Abide in me and I in you. That is such an important teaching in John 15 that Jesus reveals to his disciples about real spiritual growth. A lot of times we look at John 15 and we focus on the fruit, but the focus of that passage is to abide, abide, abide. The fruit will come, but you have to remain in him. And then we see in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John the importance of staying with the original commandment. What's the original commandment? Well, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's the teachings of Jesus Christ. Not to devalue the Ten Commandments, but as soon as you depart from what Jesus taught, you're going into heresy. That's as soon as that begins to happen. And so as we're looking at spiritual attacks, that's the whole focus of this passage. Just as a reminder, look at what it says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye, this ye is the believer, may be able to stand against the wiles or the attacks of the devil. There's a reminder in verse 12 of what we're fighting against. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. That doesn't mean that flesh and blood will not come against us. It often will. People will come against us verbally and physically. But those people are motivated by principalities, powers, 
rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. If you remember, every time you run into somebody that is teaching false doctrine, if you remember that there is spiritual wickedness set to deceive them, you get a softer heart for that person. You begin to realize they are deceived. Now you can really love that person because you realize they're not just someone who is an oppressor, they are a victim of a false teaching. That should be important. Of course, there are also times where we have to strongly rebuke people. I was just in this in Second John. I'm closing out that study uh, in our Florida Bible College class. And in Second John, John says very clearly, those who deny the doctrine of Christ, don't let them into your home. Do not bid them Godspeed. And we are also told to mark and avoid publicly those who teach contrary to the teachings of the Bible. We are not supposed to be kind and welcoming to those who deny the Lord that bought us. Amen? This is something that we have to be able to understand. But as far as evangelism is concerned, there's nobody that's excluded. We should be able to share the gospel with everybody, and we should be willing to do that. It's going to get harder and harder, but that doesn't mean we stop. The Lord's going to have the final word. We need to be faithful with what we've been given. So we see here this first word in verse 13, second word actually, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, we talked about loins girt about with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then it says here in verse 16, there are two words. It says, above all. Now, this puts priority over these other parts. And you may ask, why? Well, when you see what equipment is used as an illustration to illustrate these principles of the armor of God, you see why it makes sense. That first two, those first two verses, they all deal with things that cover the body. Girding up the loins, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet protected with the knowledge of the gospel. If you run into spiritual battle, just having those things, you're going to get attacked and you're going to fall. This is why I say, and, and I strongly believe, you can do parts of the Christian life well, but you will not live the Christian life well if you don't do it all. You can be a great person of prayer, but if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not reading God's word, if you're not fellowshipping with the body of Christ, you're going to fall at some point. It's just a matter of when, not if. You can be a very good soul winner, bringing people to faith in Christ and neglect prayer, neglect Bible study. It's just a matter of time until the devil gets a hold of you and you're taken out. You may say, well, how so? This is how so. Because you're gonna, if you're if you're winning people to Christ, the devil's gonna want to take you out. He's gonna find a crack there. He's gonna find something that you are weak on. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on these different areas of our life. We should, but we should recognize all of it is important. We all should be serious about our prayer life. We all should be serious about studying God's word and sharing our faith and being available for the body of Christ. That should, it shouldn't just be, well, that, you know, that's not my spiritual gift. It's not about a spiritual gift. None of these things here are spiritual gifts. They are things that we take up and put on. That's active. 
And that is what I want you to see here in verse 16. Above all, the shield, the helmet, and the Word of God. Why is the shield so important? It protects the body. Imagine you're a soldier. You're the strongest in your company. You are the most skilled in all forms of combat, but you're the first one out. And you're facing a sky that is darkening with fiery arrows. Not going to take long until you are pierced by those arrows. Doesn't matter how great your armor is. Doesn't matter how great certain parts of your body may be protected. Those arrows are designed to find the smallest place and penetrate. Not going to take long until you take a couple arrows in the neck or in, the, in, in a vital organ. You're bleeding out. You're done. You're of no value. The shield protects the body. Notice here how the shield is described. Taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. I want to focus on that first instruction there, taking. This invokes the believer actively picking up their faith. Believers must be actively living the Christian life in order to stand against the adversary. This is not something that we pick up on Sundays and take off on Mondays and then find a little bit of it on Wednesday and then set it aside Wednesday night. The Christian life is not a style. It is a proclamation of who we are. This is something that we not necessarily identify with. This is who I am. This is the thrust of my life. You take it up, but notice it's a shield to defend the body, and it quenches. This is what I think is amazing. Because as Paul's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that word quench is not a synonym for a different word. This is literal. If you take a look up on the screen there, the shield is highlighted. Most of the time, you can look at these old shields and they have these little holes around the edge where there's like a, not not a screw, but a wedge or a peg or something put in there. The reason why that is is because on this wooden shield, most of the times, if you were in a very important military company, they would put that shield, which is wood, they'd cover it in leather. You say, why? It's not because they wanted to be more stylist, you know, to have, have better style. Oh, mine has leather. Yours is basic wood. Look at you. That's not the point. They would often dip and submerge these shields in water well before the battle. For what purpose? Why would you want a waterlogged shield so that when the fiery darts come and they hit your shield, the fire goes out? Think of how serious a fire would be in a dry climate. You could be able to hold your shield and then a fiery dart hits it, but if it's a dry shield, it's not going to take long. You get three or four more of those. Now you have a shield that's on fire, and that's not a cool graphic. That's a problem. (laughs) It's a major problem, especially if you looked at the way that Roman soldiers would protect themselves. You'd have certain people in the middle. They would flip their shield up, and then people on the outside would flip their shield out, and they'd look like a little turtle, and they would protect themselves. How serious would it be if fiery darts came and hit all of those shields, and they're all on fire now? Now they've, they've literally cooked themselves. Their next defense is self-preservation. They're no longer focused on the battle. i got to stay alive because now my equipment is on fire. They abandon the shield, and now here they are, totally unprotected, totally ready. 
for, or, uh, 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 totally unprepared for the enemy. This quenching of the fiery darts is very similar to what our faith does when we put it to practice. That's in two ways. It's actually in two steps. Think of it this way. It is trusting in all that God has revealed. How do we know what God has revealed to us from his word? We have to trust what the word has revealed, and then we have to actively apply that trust when attacked. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. hold your spot there in Ephesians 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says this, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Look in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 Verse 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is important to recognize, especially when we see Paul saying we have to pick up the shield of faith. This is not the idea that I'm picking it up when I need God and I know he can provide. For example, let's say you're coming towards the end of the year, you are short on cash, and you know that a Christmas bonus is coming, but you're not sure how much it is. So you're concerned, but you're not that concerned, so you ask God. Oh, God, if, if, if it's your will, you know, I need some extra cash, blah, blah, blah. That's not asking in faith. Nor is it to say in a dire situation where you don't know you're going to get your money from, nor is it asking in faith, not sure if God can provide. This is full-hearted trust that God can do exactly what he said he will do. And if you don't know the word, you don't know what God can do. You're cooked. Cooked. It'll be over very quickly. Not to say your life will be over, but your peace, your joy, God's, God's willingness to provide for you, it will not happen. I don't think people recognize how serious these verses are that we just read. The man that asks with the two-faced idea of, I'm going to ask God, but I don't believe he can do it. He gets nothing, zero. You get nothing. Can you imagine in your time of need receiving nothing because you don't believe that God can do it? It's not that he needs to know that for some type of godly bravado to be kicked in. He wants you to learn how to trust him. There are so many things that we don't see that God is using in our lives to meet our requests. And it requires the element of trust. Trust in what? That's why you need to know the Word. I have dealt with this with some people here. I think of, my, of our brother Ernie. 
Remember talking to Ernie. And he's coming towards, things are tough. Money's getting tight. And reminding him of what he already knew. But I say, Matthew 6, brother. God takes care of the little sparrow, the little bird. He'll take care of you. That's why my heart gets just, I'm just, I have so much joy when I hear someone like Ernie say, I got a job. God met the need. And I knew all along, I didn't know how, but I knew that it would come to pass. God would take care of Ernie. And did he? Guess who proved himself to be reliable? Once again. But you've got to go through those times in order to see that result. But you have to be prepared. Because what's the fiery dart in that situation? Doubt. Oh, but God didn't plan for this. Market crash. God didn't prepare for a, an economy with this rate of inflation. You had a savings account. It's suddenly gone now. He, he didn't take that into account. He knows it all, folks. He's asking you to trust him. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Having discussed the shield here, Paul's audience would have understood the reference to fiery darts because it was a common projectile weapon in their day. Matter of fact, they, they had the ability, in, in some cases, to light, or to, uh, not light stones, but to heat them so that they could throw them into people's houses and it would spark and cause a fire. These things were very common. So certainly the comparison between the attacks from the devil as fiery darts and the shield of faith being described as something that can quench is that it is soaked, it is prepared, it's ready for when that attack does come. Not if, but when it does come. Looking at the next verse here, verse 17, Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet, the helmet. What does that protect? The kneecap, right? If you go into battle and your battle mate puts his helmet on his knee, maybe go with somebody else. <laughs> it might fit, but that's not where it goes. Or you put your helmet on your foot, or you hold it in your hand. What is that supposed to protect? The dome, folks. You can't tell these hands what to do if this is not working. You, you take this out, everything else goes <laughs> disconnected. How do we protect this up here? Now, is it talking about our physical head, like we're supposed to be knuckleheads out here? It's talking about what's going on in here, the way we think, the way we perceive things. This described as the helmet of salvation is, again, something that we take. Look at what it says in verse 17, and take. You've got to pick this up. This protects the brain, central control of the whole body. This affects how we think. And specifically, it's not a reminder necessarily that we are saved, because we are. It builds from that. You can ask for deliverance in your time of need. Why? Because you're a child of God. You're not just a sinner now separated from God. You're in the family. You have an inheritance. There's an opportunity for you that is not afforded to the regular person who's not saved. You've experienced the passing from death unto life. So you have to protect what happens up here because if you tell yourself you're going to lose up here, you're not asking God in faith. You've got a shield that's not soaked. You, you've got armor that has holes in it. Look in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, specifically addressing what we should think on. 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. He doesn't stop there, though, but boy, that's a list. When you're going through spiritual attack, you dwell on the things that are true. You know what I like about this? The very first thing that we're advised to dwell on is truth. Truth. What's the truth about these spiritual attacks that we face? They're temporary. What's another truth? We have armor. What's another truth? It cannot condemn us to hell. Hmm. What we're doing here is we're setting perspective. We're lining things up. I went shooting at uh, some property this past Monday, and you got a nice scope on there, on that gun, but if you're too close, you don't see anything out of that scope. If you're too far, it's literally a small dot. you got to be at the right distance so that the field of vision kicks in and you can see. The next thing that needs to happen is you need to sight that thing in. My eyes are different than my brother's eyes, so when he's shooting... He's got a different level of magnification, and i got to switch it too. It is amazing to me how quickly you can get a blurry image to go, I mean, so clear you can see a fly dancing on the target. It's like, boom, right there. Being able to have that vision, it sets the right perspective. I would be ignorant, and it would be malicious of me to shoot a weapon at a target that I can't see with a scope that's not sighted in. I could take somebody's life. I don't have the right view. My perspective is incorrect. If I want that bullet to go where it's supposed to go, I better take the time to set the perspective. Great illustration to our Christian life. You want success? You need to know the perspective of which you look at things. Think on things above, not on things on the earth. He's coming back for who? You. You're already His. Think on those things. Then you have in verse 9, those things which you have both learned. We just prayed for Brother Zach, who's got midterms and exams coming up. You think he would be in a bad spot if he went into the wrong exam? All this time, you're learning French, right? And he says, oui, oui. No, but if he walks into, I don't know, Portuguese, and he's looking at it and he's like, I'm not even prepared He's learned specific things in which he will be tested on. you got to be present in order to learn. When Paul says here, those things which you have learned, he's talking to people who have educated themselves in the teaching of God's Word. you got to know the Word. And have received and heard and seen in me, two-letter word, do. Do. Just do it. And the God of peace shall be with you. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. This one I never thought of, but I saw it in the treasury of scripture knowledge. It had a comparison. That's a commentary, by the way. It kind of is like a big verse reference thing. Most of the time they get it right. Sometimes you're like, I don't know what happened there. But they link this verse and I, I like it. And I thought, oh, I see why that's there now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. By the way, what was the, what was the, What was Paul addressing 
in Thessalonica at this portion of the letter. They were afraid that the day of the Lord had already had passed them and they missed it. So they had a wrong perspective. And he says, no, no, that day's not going to come. You'll be out of here before that happens. And know that you're of the day and not of the night. But he says here, but let us who are of the day be sober. This is the opposite of drunk. You're, you're, you have all your senses together. You can make good judgment calls. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You can say that this way too. The hope of deliverance. I know one day, should I face persecution from my country where my life would be put on the line, I have hope of deliverance. Why? Because I have put my trust in Jesus Christ. But they take my life anyway. Delivered! The package has arrived. You can call out to God in those moments knowing that deliverance is there. I'm not trying to live forever on this planet in this condition. No. I want the new, I want the new body. I want the home in heaven. That's the helmet of salvation. Listen to this here as, as, as we're coming to a close before we get to the, the sword here. You can go back to Ephesians 6. The believer has already received salvation from condemnation. We know that from John 5, 24. Pass from death unto life, never be brought into condemnation again. But his helmet of salvation protects him from present and future deliverance. The believer can confidently, that's the way that we ask, call on God to save him from spiritual attack because he is already saved from anything that could really threaten him. What a precious truth. There's literally nothing they could do to you. There's nothing the devil could do to you that would change what God has already said is done. Amen? Woo! That'll put a smile on your face. Well, it should. Then finally, we have the sword. Not much to say here, but what is to be said is important. This is the only weapon that's described here. You could contend, too, that prayer is also a weapon, but I think that's more of a petition. This sword, by the way, you think with Roman armor and stuff like that, the long sword is what was common. It was common of high-ranking officials. But most people had a sword about this big. Why? You don't want to depend on some big, heavy thing you've got to swing on. You've got to be quick with the hand-to-hand -hand combat. You've got a sword this long that's light and sharp. You can disembowel somebody. Sorry to be graphic there, but very quickly, you can take somebody out on the battlefield. That is how the word of God is described for the believer. That's how we fight against the devil, with the word, the word, the word. Not your will, not your strength, the word of God. Matthew 4, verses 4, 7, and 10, you see Jesus respond to the devil in each way. The Lord said, God said, tempt not the Lord thy God. Man shall not live off of bread alone, but out of every word that proceedeth out of the uh, mouth of God. He answered with Scripture. The devil twists Scripture. He quotes it, but he quotes it incorrectly. I was listening to a panel, four-minute panel, with the leading Calvinists of today. I can probably name one of them to you. It was Sproul. This was towards the end of his life when he was on the breathing machine. And they were asked about the doctrine of limited atonement. And in a room where you could hear a pen drop, they spent four and a half minutes using no scripture, none, 
They used logic. They used commentaries. They used fancy turn of phrase. And the whole audience goes. <laughs> but the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Why is that not brought up? Because that's where the power is. That's what happens when I get on these Bible line videos and I'm dicing people up with scripture. They don't like it. Too bad. That's God's word. It's the sword that I've been told to use. So many times, and Trent can back me up on this, so many times people come after us without any scripture. Zero. Matter of fact, I was just giving Trent a book that I had read. It's about this thick. It's, it's Calvin, all his different institutes of religion. And Trent goes, this is exactly what people are leaving in the comment section. And it's just stuff that John Calvin wrote. No doctrine, to back, no scripture to back it up. And if you know a lot about Calvin, he was very against the Catholic Church and this idea of just throwing money in for penance and saying you're taken care of. I'm against that too, but that doesn't mean that true repentance has to be evidenced in works either. It's just not how that is. You can't have it both ways there. But then there's also Hebrews 4.12 about the sharpness of the word, that it not only pierces the joint and marrow, that will proceed out of the Lord's mouth. In Revelation 19, we see that. But it also gets to the heart of the matter. He can see all things are exposed before him. You want to be the most effective? you got to believe that God will do what he said, which is you knowing what the word is and then using the word. And I have no problem, no problem with people quoting scripture out loud in their time of need. As a matter of fact, that word there for word of God is not logos. It's rhema, I think, which is more along the lines of speaking. You're going through a hard time. You say those verses to yourself. Remind yourself of them. You're tempted with lust. You remember, think on those things which are true and pure. And you'll be presented with the word that is in agreement with the Holy Spirit and dwelling in you. You've got to really break that barrier to go forward. It's a reminder. This is what God said. This is what my flesh wants. I need to go with what God said. I've got no problem with people quoting Scripture out loud. And that's, you know, you can close your Bibles. I think that's interesting. When you go to these panels of these theologians, hardly ever do they quote Scripture. I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that is, it's a side effect, it's a symptom. You have a bad cough for several weeks, you might have bronchitis. The cough is not bronchitis, right? That's not, that's a symptom of an underlying problem. These theologians, they never quote scripture. Is that the problem? No, the problem is they don't know what the Bible says because they're not believing what the Bible says. They, don't, they, have, they have no idea even what it says because if, even if they did hear it, they wouldn't believe it. That's why you, little old us here, 4811 George Road, we got to know the word. We got to be people of the word. And we got to be able to use that thing. Make sure that people, you, when you share the gospel, you start using verses, man, that's powerful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not your poetry. That's not your language, frilly little way to say something. That's what God said. Amen? It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, people don't have a problem with you now. They have a problem with God because he said it. 
I think that's probably the best comment response I have on the YouTube stuff. I'm like, well, God said it. Be mad at me because I'm quoting it. Talk to him about it. Careful now. You know, <laughs> but maybe you're here tonight, you don't know where you're going to go when you die. You can understand that you'll be in heaven, right? You, you can understand that today. You don't have to wait. You can know right now. If this hand represents you and me, let this block of sin represent sin. Put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. That's why this is so serious. We shouldn't play around with this and think we can pay for it ourselves. A lot of people think, well, if I go to church, if I live a good life, if I give money, then it will pay for this sin. The wages of sin is death. It's not good works. And even if it were good works, none of the works we do are good. They're all filthy rags. We're all separated from God because of sin. He loves us and provided a way to pay for this sin, but it's not by you being here tonight at church or being faithful this holiday season to go to church or read your Bible or pray. Somebody has to shed their blood and die for this sin. If you and I were to do it, we'd spend an eternity in hell. That's why God sent his only begotten son. I'll let this hand represent Jesus Christ, the son of God, who shed his blood. He died, he was buried and rose again three days later. For what purpose? As a demonstration for how we attain salvation? No, no. He did what you and I could never do. He paid for this sin, all of it, past, present, and future. He said it before he died. It is finished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How can I know I'm going to heaven? All my sin is paid. How do I know all my sin is paid? I believed on Jesus Christ. That what he did as the Son of God paid for my sin completely. So now I stand here today, not yet in heaven, but knowing I'll be there. Why? Because I have confidence in myself that I'll finish my race well? No, no. Because Jesus died for all my sin. That's how I know. And if you're here tonight and you walked in, you said, I didn't know that. I knew Jesus died, but I didn't know that's what I had to believe on to receive eternal life. Then I implore you to change your mind and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads are bowed, nice are closed. Nobody's looking around. Out of respect for those here in the auditorium, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I walked in today and I did not know that I was going to go to heaven or hell when I died. I hope it would just kind of figure itself out. Now you've come to the understanding that what has been offered to you is full forgiveness and the payment for sin. Right now, where you're sitting, would you put your trust in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who shed His blood, was buried and rose again to pay for your sin? Would you put your trust in Him? I'm not trying to get emotional with you or to work you up. It's a plea. And if that makes sense to you tonight, for the first time you say, Pastor, I know I'm going to heaven now. Would you pray for me? I'm saved. I certainly will. Would you raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just says, Pastor, pray for me. I trusted on Jesus Christ tonight. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. Anyone before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. These three pieces of our armor, they are the most important. You can have all the 
body protections, but if you don't have a shield, those darts are going to, they're going to set you back. And it doesn't have to be that way. Would you ask the Lord for strength and then do the things necessary to prepare yourself? I think you'll be blessed by it. Please don't forget those in your family, those at your workplace that are grieving this holiday season because they've lost loved ones. Please pray for them. Remember those in our own church family that are grieving this, this, uh, this year because it's the first time that they're experiencing these sweet family moments without somebody. Please lift those up in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word and the ability to study it tonight. We think of the Paulsons for Jim and Nancy. We, we pray for Nancy uh, to be... Lord, we ask that she's healed. But if this is where it's time for her to be with you, I pray for peace and comfort. We pray for Jim too and for his family. I've just been thinking about them this week. I thank you, Lord, that we can be here tonight. Bring us back here safely on Sunday morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things.